0: All right, let's pray, shall we, before we begin tonight. Father, we do thank you for the wonderful things that you've taught us so far in this course. And we thank you that these tapes are going to be used to convict many Christians as well as non-Christians. Father, I thank you already for the response to these studies. Father, I thank you for so many who've realized that they, without meaning to be, have been enemies of Christ because they haven't been standing up for the truth in the Word of God. And I do thank you that we are able to hold this Bible in our hands and to say this is the inspired Word of God. This is the mind of God, both for us as individuals and for our generation. And Father, I would ask tonight, in Jesus' name, that, Father, we may take a step forward individually, a step forward in our faith, and a step forward in the revival that we believe is coming to our nation. Father, through what we share tonight, even though it's so basic, I just pray, Father, that people's lives are going to be revolutionized and that, Father, we might truly say after a few months that we'll never be the same again. I would pray for us all that we should not just be hearers of this word, but that we should be doers also. Father, forgive us if we deceived ourselves. It's so easy to have clichés in our vocabulary and think that just because we use the clichés that we're living the life. I ask tonight that we should have many in this fellowship, many in this country who are not just using the cliches, but who are living the true Christian life. Therefore, Father, I ask you to just guide us tonight and convict us where it's necessary to convict us, but instruct us in the way that we should go. Father, I would ask you to speak tonight in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Well, we come to the sixth Bible study tonight, and can I say I don't remember a course of Bible studies in which I've covered so much material as this particular group of studies. I hope those of you who've been with me up to this point have really taken in the information that I've given out. Now the rest of the course is vital for our nation, for our society. And I'm going to be covering a lot of things in the rest of the course that will help us understand the uh, Basic teachings of the Word of God and how they apply to us as individuals and to our society But in this Bible study, I want to do something entirely different I'm going to go right back to basics And I don't mind whether you're a mature believer here tonight or whether you're still a babe in Christ You need to hear what I've got to say tonight As I've been thinking about the Bible study tonight, I've been refreshed in my own soul to get back to the nitty-gritty things that I have to do in my Christian life. Tonight I'm going to ask the very simple question, how do you study the Bible? Now here's the Bible. We now, I hope, know that it's the inspired Word of God. Now we've got to ask ourselves, if it is the inspired Word of God, it is so important that the quicker I get to know it, the better. And tonight I'm going to talk to you about how to study the Bible for yourself and perhaps give you a few hints along the way. I want to say one thing immediately and really lay it on the line. Every person who is born again, who calls themselves a Christian, ought to be spending time every day in the Word of God. They should also be spending time praying every day. If you as a Christian, I don't care how old you are, if you are out of the habit of having a time with God every day in which he can speak to you, you can speak to him, and in in which you can study what God has to say to us all, then I'll tell you this, you are bound to be ineffectual and weak and really rather unstable. Every Christian should be having a regular time with God every day. If you are not having a regular time with God every day, do you know that before long you are going to feel as if God is miles away from you? You're going to feel as if God never communicates with you. You're going to feel as if God is a stranger. Do you know, often I get people who come for ministry, and they say something like this. They sit there, they have a nice cup of coffee, and we talk about the law together. And then I say, now how can I help you? Well, I just feel so dried up. You know, not in our fellowship, of course. But uh, people come, I feel so dried up. I just can't seem to get through to God anymore. And I don't know what's wrong. Now, if they're a mature believer, and they are having time with God, and I know that their relationship is deep, very often I have to say to them, do you know, I'm afraid that's part of growing up in God. Do you know, all of us at times know what it is to be in the valley. At other times, we know what it is to be on the mountaintop, But I have to say to these mature people, sometimes God will test us to see how much we love Him, and it seems for a moment as though God has withdrawn Himself. He wants to see whether we will just continue loving Him and just continue pouring ourselves out to Him, even though for a temporary time we're getting nothing back. And to mature people, I have to say, I'm sorry, you are going through such a time as that. I go through them, you've got to go through them. But the key of all that is, This, you will see how mature you are and how much you love the Lord. And remember this, that the mature Christian is like a tree who is planted by the side of the spring and who has deep roots. And when the drought comes, he doesn't notice. You should, if you're mature, be able always to be abounding and flourishing in God no matter how dry the circumstances are around you. Now that's a few people, the mature ones. Sometimes I will discern that there is a spiritual attack being made upon them. That it's as if Satan has put a shroud over them, you know, and so that they feel cut off from God And it's a lie of the devil at that point. They need ministry, and they need prayer But sometimes and this is the majority of cases After they've explained their problem. I just ask a little question well, um tell me how long have you spent with the Lord today? Um, no, honestly Oh, well uh, No, um, well, well, how long did you spend yesterday? How long have you spent during the last week? How long do you normally spend with the Lord? Be honest. And do you know, in 60% of the times, people have to admit, well, I'm sorry, I I don't really have a regular time with God. Or I take the Bible up sometimes, and I have a quick dip in, you know, when it suits me, but I, I can never get much from it, they say. That's what they say. Or I say, I pray all the time. Of course, you know, as I'm going to work and uh, at work, I pray all the time. These bubbles of prayer are coming up. But um, but you don't mean that, do you? No, I don't mean that. How long do you spend every day just before the Lord? Oh well, I'm ever so busy. No, I really am terribly busy. You know, I've got two young children, and uh, this is and and I'm terribly busy. And I say ten minutes. No, n- uh, well, uh, ten. No, oh. Well, you see, I used to, but um, I found that it got very dry at one point, and so I sort of got out of the habit. And you know, I have to say to them, no wonder you feel so dried up. And often they say, well, God seems to speak to everyone else, but he doesn't talk to me. Do You know, it's very hard to have a conversation on the telephone with someone who won't answer the phone. It's jolly hard. Who answers and says, hello, bye-bye. Very hard to have a consecutive conversation. And it's no use saying they're not there. Well, they never talk to me. It's no good, but you never answer the phone, is the answer. And very often, weak, unstable believers often have as the root of their instability the fact that they are not spending time with God. Now, I don't mean spending three hours with God every day. I mean spending some time. If you're young, it may be just ten minutes. If you're middle-aged in the Lord, not in the natural, but in the Lord, it might be half an hour. On a special day, you might be able to get an hour with the Lord, but you should be spending some time. Do you know, by the way, the whole body of Christ has swung over this issue. Now, when I was first converted, we were told all was to have a QT. Have you heard that, QT? QT stands for a quiet time. You must always have a quiet time. And uh, in fact, when my father was converted, he was giving a little book which said, Seven Minutes with God. Right? And every day you must have seven minutes with God. He was a very young Christian. Two minutes reading the Bible, two minutes praying, one minute meditating, two minutes doing something. I've forgotten now what you had to do. And and there it was, the QT. And I was told, now you must have a QT. The trouble was, we became very religious about this QT. Often I used to set an alarm clock to tell me when the quarter of an hour had come to an end. And, um, (laughs) you know, you used to be reading the Bible through and looking at it, looking at the clock, and carrying on like this, you see, no matter where you are, oh good, well that's it. And I've read, you didn't take in what you'd read, as long as you'd done your quarter of an hour, now five minutes praying, right, five minutes, right, time's up, and so you carry on like that. And of course, before long, we rebelled against it, you see. We rebelled against it because we learned that the Christian life consists of living with the Lord moment by moment, hour by hour, minute by minute. And so we began to say, no need to have a quiet time, I'm living with God all the time. That's true. And by the way, for those of us who are mature, because we've become stable through our quiet times, it worked very well. The trouble was, there were all sorts of unstable youngsters coming up, and it didn't work well for them. We were not teaching them how to have a regular time with God. And I must tell you this, I believe today that we've got to do both of those. We've got to live moment by moment with the Lord. Of course you have. But you must also have a time which is God's. Now, many Christians are without excuse. Many Christians listen to the radio or the TV for hours during the day. Surely you can switch the thing off for 20 minutes to have time with God. So we've got to understand that this time with God, and I'm not going to call it a quiet time, is essential. And please don't get religious about it. Read the Word of God and take in what it says. You can vary the time, but you must have some time every single day. If we do not have this time, we are never going to see revival. You see, revival begins with the individual. It doesn't begin on a nationwide thing. It begins with you and me, my brother and my sister, all of us. Do you know this actually, when you look look at it, it's why so many churches are ineffectual and weak today. It is true. Most churches, you think of the church you belong to, whether it's true of them. Most churches have a core group that's really on fire for the Lord. A core group who really have the vision of the place that they're in, and they have an awful lot of hangers-on. People who know the clichés, people who will come and have a cup of coffee and chat or fellowship or gossip or whatever it is they're going to do. But really, the truth about them is they're freewheeling in their faith. You see, they're not actually receiving from God and they're living on the backs of everyone else. If this percentage is large, the percentage of free willers, you have a dead church with a small group who are dying to see the thing come alive. If it's large, you have a live church, right? Because there are lots of people who are living uh, in faith, you know, and on the word of God. But really you've got quite a number who are being dragged along by their ears. If we are going to see truly effective churches, it means that every individual has got to become a Bible, a, a man and woman of the Bible. It's essential. We've got to really face up to this, you see. Nationally, we must see it. Do you know that no matter how much the Holy Spirit is poured out on our nation, unless the individuals in the nation turn to the Word of God and start having dealings with God, the revival cannot and will not last. That's true. How many revivals have there been in Britain? There have been lots and lots and lots. you read the history of some of the revivals. And yet the majority of them, we have to say this, have been a flash in the pan. They've lasted for a little season, and then there's been nothing afterwards. Have you ever read the stories about the Welsh Revival? Have you ever read those? Now, my family was living in Wales at the time of the Welsh Revival. My family was untouched by the Welsh Revival. I have to say that. They were totally untouched by the revival that went on. But sometimes when I read those stories, I think, Lord, when are you going to do it? A man would stand up and preach, and suddenly the whole church would be flat on their faces, sobbing their hearts out in repentance. Fantastic stuff used to go on. The Holy Spirit poured out so that meetings could never come to an end. They used to be still there in the morning because they couldn't move from the presence of God. Oh, it was so wonderful. And after you have got really thrilled with these accounts, do you know, I don't want you to stop there. Put the book aside, and at the earliest moment... You climb into your little Toyota or whatever car you've got and you beetle off to Wales. You pop along to Wales. Go to some of those valleys where the revival was so strong. Do you know what you find there? I can speak from experience. I've just got back from Rhondda, as some of you know. I've been ministering in the Rhondda Valley a few weeks ago. What do you find there? Do you find the effects of the revival still there? You do not. What do you find? You find very hardened communities. It's a very hard place. You find some lovely Christians who weren't converted by the revival, but they find it really tough, and they feel they're in an alien culture altogether. And as you drive through these places, you notice how many chapels there are about. Chapels? They've got so many chapels, it's hard to count them. Big ones, small ones. But when you look at them, do you know the vast majority, 99.9% are derelict, abandoned, finished. Spiritually, you can see Ichabod written over the top. Ichabod, the glory is deba- departed. These places that used to be superabounding with the fruit of the Spirit and with the gifts of the Spirit, they're all shut up. What's happened? Do you know what happened? The failure was this, that when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they failed then to have a back-to-the-Bible movement. And as a result, their experience of revival became one of emotion rather than one that was solidly based on the Word of God. Having done that, you might be feeling a bit low, you have a look at some of the other revivals that have hit this country. Revivals that have been true revivals, where the Spirit was poured out and where there was a back-to-the-Bible movement. And do you know what you find? You find the effects of that revival lasting for centuries after the revival. You know the example that I'm going to quote tonight, Wesley. Wesley went around this country, he was preaching the word, preaching the word, preaching the word. It was wonderful. He challenged the whole nation that the word of God said this, like the Puritans before. The Puritans went around preaching the word of God. It says they had their foot on the necks of kings. Lovely. And that's what Wesley did. And around this country, thousands were converted, but just as equally important as that. He actually got the unbelievers of the land to start taking the word of God seriously. Wesley got the word of God into the institutions of this land. Do you know many of the laws that we have in our land were written after the Wesley revival? Isn't that amazing? And in this day and age, they're only now being changed. Many of these laws have been taken straight from the Bible. Now, do you see he preached the word. And because he did, and because this nation started being revived in the Word of God, as well as in the Spirit, so the revival lasted. Now, you know what I'm going to say now. Many people today think revival's upon us in Britain. Or if it's not here, they think it's going to come. I have a warning to give to us all, and a warning to the country. And it's this. Unless the outpouring of the Spirit is accompanied by a back-to-the-Bible movement, do you know that any revival is going to be short-term and short-lived? And before long, it's going to have denominationalism written all over it, or it's going to have Ichabod written, just like the Welsh Revival had. I can give you an example in the Word of God of what I'm talking about. And I would like us, please, to turn to 1 Samuel and chapter 6, and I think you'll, you'll get the idea of what I'm saying. 1 Samuel... And chapter 6, and you've got to realize that this is a very low time in the history of Israel, very low indeed. The people have been out of fellowship for a long time. And do you remember, because they were out of fellowship, they were losing battles, left, right, and center. And so suddenly one of them decides, look, why don't we bring the Ark of God into this, right? And they started treating the Ark as if it was a lucky charm. Oh, well, you know, we're not winning, so bring out the uh, lucky charm, and then all our uh, fortunes are going to change. That's what they said. And you remember what happened? The Philistines caught the ark. Do you remember that? They captured it. Eli, the old priest, was so overcome, he just couldn't believe it. And you you remember? He fell backwards and broke his neck and died. It was a very low time indeed in the nation. Well, lovely. You read the story for yourself. God fought for himself. And do you remember the Philistines had the ark for seven months, and that's all they could bear? Do you remember that story? Everywhere the ark went, there was a cursing, right? Their their idols used to topple over. Everyone was struck with illness and cursing, until finally they they put it in one city, another city, another city, and finally they said, we've had enough of this ark. We've got to send it back to Israel. And they got a cart, do you remember that? And they put the ark on the cart, and they got two cows, and off the cows went, lowing their heads off until it came to the border area and to a place called Beth Shemesh. Do you remember that? All right, let's read, shall we, what happened at Beth Shemesh. In verse 13 of 1 Samuel, and chapter 6, here they are, now they're getting on with the harvest. And they of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. And a cart came into the field of Joshua, a Beth Shemite, and stood there where there was a great stone, and they clave the wood of the cart and offered the kind a burnt offering unto the Lord. Not very kind, that, was it? But there we are, and they say, oh, marvelous, the cows have come as well, we'll offer them up to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the coffer that was with it, wherein the jewels of gold were, and put them on the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices the same day unto the Lord. Now the presence of the ark caused a mini-revival. Wonderful. There it is. They were rejoicing. They were praising God. The ark was right there. The tragedy was that they had the zeal for God, but it was not enlightened. They didn't know what they were doing. And do you know what they did? Someone took the lid off to have a look inside. And because of that, cursing came upon them. Do you know, in our day and age, by the way, the ark of God is coming back into our land. The very presence of God in our land. And there are many people in this day who are acting full of exuberance. Oh, they're so thrilled with it. The trouble is they have a zeal for God, but without enlightenment. And that's a very dangerous thing, and it's bound to bring disaster in the end and the end of the revival. And sure enough, in Bethshemesh, the revival comes to a rapid and abrupt end. Look what it says, verse 19. And he smote, God this is, God smote the men of Bethshemesh because they'd looked into the ark of the Lord even he smote of the people 50,000 and threescore and ten men. And the people lamented, because the Lord had smitten many of the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall he go up from us? And they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjath-jiarim, saying, The Philistines have brought again the ark of the Lord. Come ye down, and fetch it up to you. And let's read the next two verses, 1 Samuel 7, 1 and 2. And the men of Kirjath-Jiarim came and fetched up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill and sanctified Eliezer, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass, while the ark abode in Kirjath-Jiarim, that the time was long, for it was twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now, read that verse 2 again for yourself. The ark of God which was the most precious possession that the Jews had stayed in Kerjath uh, Jearim for 20 whole years neglected ignored it was as if the people just uh, chose to decide that it wasn't there after all and there it was 20 long years ignored by the nation And Samuel at this time was beginning his ministry. There were two prophets about this time. This overlaps with the end of Judges, right, for your information. Remember, the Jews didn't write chronologically. They wrote logically. Do remember that, all right? And Samuel's ministering in most of Israel. You've also got that chunky-punky called Samson, who's down in the southwest. And Samson's causing a lot of trouble down there, and God was in the trouble. Praise God. And that's another story. But Samuel begins his ministry. Now, what does Samuel do? He could have had a cheap revival. Easy. Well, I'll tell you what we'll do, folks. Let's go down and and bring the ark up. He doesn't do it. Do you know what Samuel does instead? He begins to teach the word of God. Twenty years and more, the man starts wandering all around Israel, teaching the word, teaching the word, teaching the word everywhere he went. You see it in verse 3. And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. And everywhere Samuel went, he was preaching the word of God, up and down the land, all over the place. And do you know what else he did? He established Bible colleges everywhere. Right? Not uh, religious settlements, but where people could come to be trained in the Word of God. These were called uh, the schools of the prophets. And the people who went there were called the sons of the prophets. Do you remember we meet them in the story of Elijah and Elisha? The sons of the prophets that were at such and such a place. He established the Bible teaching right through the land. And once Bible teaching had been established in the land, then the ark was brought up. Do you see that? And do you remember who brought the ark up? David did. That some years after this. And David went down, he got the ark and went dancing in front of it, do you remember, into Jerusalem. But that could have happened 20 years before. But it wouldn't have lasted. It was the teaching of the word by Samuel that made the ark lastingly effective. And today I tell you this, we've got to have a back to the Bible movement. The revival in our land has either got to be spearheaded by this Back to the Bible movement, or it must be accompanied by it, or if necessary, the Back to the Bible movement must come afterwards. But if it doesn't come, and if our land is not challenged by the Word of God, Ichabod is going to be written over the revival. It's happened before, and the one thing we must do is learn from history. It can happen again. So where does this begin? It's got to begin somewhere. I'll tell you where it begins. It begins in you and me has to. We've got to experience revival in the Holy Spirit, but also revival in the Word of God, every one of us. And once it's begun with individuals, it can then spread onto to churches. And once it's begun with churches, then it can start making an impact into the society in which we live. But it's got to begin somewhere, and here am I, Lord, let it begin with me. Fail to do this, and we will see no revival of a lasting nature. It's absolutely essential. We've got to get into the Word of God. And so do you see, this is why we as a fellowship see our ministry as getting the Word of God into this land. Actually, I believe that is my ministry. Actually, I believe I have a ministry that's half Samuel and half Samson, right? I'm a bit of a chunky-punky spiritually, but I'm also a Bible teacher. And I see the two ministries, I'll explain this some other time, coming together. But we as a fellowship, I believe, have been established to get the Word of God out into this land. That's our job, right? Praise God for all the rest that's going on. Praise God for everyone else's ministry. But that's the push behind our own fellowship. And we've got to do it, all right? Now, if that's our ministry, let me tell you, judgment begins with the household of God. We've got to make sure that we as individuals are living up to the vision that God has given to us. So what I'm going to do is to give you certain hints that will help you study the Word of God for yourself. Can I just say one thing to begin with? If you find that lack of discipline is your problem, there's a very simple way to solve it. Very simple indeed. Ask help from others. Do you know one thing I would recommend to any of you who find it hard to have a half an hour with the Lord? I would look around for a Christian neighbor nearby, in the fellowship or even outside the fellowship, and say to them, look, I um, want to have about half an hour a day with the Lord, and I find it a bit difficult to discipline myself, and say to them, do you mind perhaps coming to my house on your way to work, or can I come to your house on my way to work, and can I just spend 20 minutes or half an hour just sitting with you in the same room? Have you thought of doing this? You don't have to make them a cup of coffee, you're not going to use their time, but just come into the same room. You can actually have two chairs back to back if you want, but you're not there to talk to one another, you're not there to pray with one another, you are there to spend time with the Lord. And you know, it's amazing how self-discipline starts coming in, you know. Say you have it early in the morning, and you want to lie in. Oh, there's going to be a ring off the bell in five minutes, and they'll be in. You see? Why don't you do something as easy as that? And That will help them, that will help you. There are ways to overcome this. With your wife, why don't you do it with your wife, with your husband, for example. Right? I don't suggest this for everyone. You may not be able to do that. But there are things that you can do to help you overcome this lack of um, diligence on a daily basis, you see. Why don't you do something like that? Instantly, for a period of my life, quite recently, I did that. And half an hour every morning, I would meet with a brother, and we'd just sit there, read the Word, pray individually. Then after half an hour, right, or when we finish, so long, and off we went. It's a good idea to do it. All right, now that's how nitty-gritty I want to be. All right, how do you study the Bible for yourself then? Well, I'm going to give you a few points and go through each in turn. The first is so obvious you might have missed it. The first point is you must choose which version of the Bible you are going to use. Is that too obvious for some people here? You must choose which version you want to use. Now, be very careful about which version you use. Be very careful. Do remember that the Inspired Bible is actually the one written in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. That's the Inspired Bible. I'm sorry if that offends some of you who think the King James is the Inspired Bible and the only one. But the Inspired Bible is actually the one written in the original languages. But we, unfortunately, most of us, don't know the original languages, so we have to choose a version of the Bible. At one time, it used to be easy, didn't it? You only have one. It was the King James Version. Everyone quoted in the King James Version. The thing is much more complicated today, isn't it? Because we've got so many versions that are around. And so we have to decide which to us is the most accurate one that we can use, or perhaps the most readable version that we can use. You may have noticed this, that I always use the King James Version myself. That's not because I feel that there's something special about the King James Version. Do you remember that when the King James Version of the Bible came out, the people hated it so much they wouldn't buy it. Do you remember that? They preferred the old version of the Bible, not this modern, newfangled thing. And in fact, the uh, people who translated the King James Version were so worried about this, they went to the king and said, no one's buying the Bible. And they said, "Uh, there's one way around this. King James, will you write a bit at the front saying this is the version that you recommend? And he said, certainly, and we'll call it the King James Version. Oh, certainly, he said, and you've still got what he wrote, right, or what they wrote about it in the front of the Bible. They had to do that to sell the thing. Now, if ever you meet someone who thinks this is the only Bible that there is, you just remind them about that. They prefer the older versions, the Matthew's version and and others, you see. I don't use the King James Version for any reason like that. I have three reasons for using the King James Version. First of all... It's an old version, and as such, all the problems in it are well known. Now, that's a great advantage, right? You see, every version has problems as to whether it's translated the Greek right, whether it's got the right nuance at this particular place, or whatever it is. And with many of the modern versions, they haven't been out long enough, really, for their difficulties to be well known. The King James Version's been out for 400 years. We know most of its quirks. That's lovely. And that's why you'll often hear me say, well, um, this passage wasn't in the original, so just scrub that verse out. Have you ever heard me say that? Or, uh, well, this is a slight mistranslation. You know, the Greek actually says, so and so and so and so. Or uh, the word here is a bit obscure. It would be better if we translated it with such and such. Now, these are well-known things that the King James Version has in it. And most people would say, oh, yes, we know about that. You see, there's no problem. Now, the modern versions, unfortunately, are not as well known as that. Now, that's a major advantage of the King James. So the first reason that I use the King James, its problems are well known. The second reason is this, that most of the good reference books that you have to use if you're going to study the Bible are in the King James Version. Now, I'm sorry about this. You remember, don't you, dear old young Robert Young, who spent 40 years of his life writing the Concordance. Oh, that we have men like that Around Today right he didn't spend his time gallivanting all over the country. He spent it in his study writing out word lists From the Bible well, it's all based on the King James All the lovely books of last century all written from the King James Version and Most of the new translations of the Bible do not have so many reference books Connected with them so up to this time you've had to use the King James or at least know the King James to actually Uh, Be a Bible student may I say that at the moment that's changing rapidly for you have reference books now coming out For the other versions they've got computers doing in you know a day or something like that what Robert Young took 40 years to do All right, but that is changing at the moment, but still at this moment. It's it's still true The third reason and you may not like this reason and not think it's legitimate. It's one I like do you know we live in a day when standards are being thrown out of the window when everything is done for ease and simplicity? And the lovely thing is I think the King James Version puts a break on all that you see Because our language is gradually being eroded and the beauty of our language is being lost And it's lovely sometimes to have a standard that you can say well uh, This is slowing the decay down you know Now, you may not think that's legitimate, but I happen to think that the actual King James Version is a very beautiful translation, and um, I rather like it. Now, they're the reasons that I use the King James Version. However, you may not like the King James Version. Whichever version you decide to have, stick with it. Can I say that again? Stick with it. You've got to get to know one version of the Bible well. Always have another version that will help you. Every version has the difficult verse in it, and sometimes turning to another version helps simplify it just a bit. Now, I've written a list of those versions that I recommend. If uh, a well-known version of the Bible is not on this list, I do not recommend it. I'm not giving you a list of versions I don't recommend, but my silence here is my non-recommendation. If it's an obscure version of the Bible, it's probably because I've never heard of it. All right? Now, here we go. Let me just give you a list of the versions that I personally would recommend And if you've got one of these I would say you're all right first of all the King James version of course Then we have this new thing out which is called the new King James version Right, and this is the King James version which has the these and the thou's replaced with you and I and and other modern pronouns all right they've taken the th Out of the King James version, so it's not presenteth. Anymore it's presents you see and if you like the King James version, but you would you know Well the dentures are slipping or whatever it is you get you get the new King James version And you'll be all right with that they've changed one or two words You know they're like closet and and old-fashioned words they put new words in its place, but basically it's the same well You get that that's all right. I would also recommend the new international version the NIV and the beauty of this is It's very readable Very readable indeed, but be careful. It's got some awful translations. Ah, you read Hebrews 11 sometime, and the mess that it makes about Abraham and Sarah, you read that, and you'll be appalled. Compare it to the King James, and you'll see why I'm warning you about that. Well, every version's got its uh, problems, but the NIV is very readable, and I would recommend it. I would also recommend the NASV, the New American Standard Version. I like that very much. I would say in my estimation anyway, that is the most accurate version of the Bible on the market today, I would say. Again, it's got one or two words that you would have to correct and and so on, but but it's pretty good. The Weymouth translation is also good. Beautiful English, the Weymouth got. If you love English, you go and read Weymouth, right? No, not the resort. Don't have to go there. You get a Weymouth and you just read it. That's a that's a very well-known one today. The Williams Translation is also very good. The Williams Translation has the most accurate tenses of verbs that you can find. A nice one, too, but very difficult to read, is the West, or worst. I'm not sure how he pronounces his name. W-U-E-S-T. And he's written this expanded version of the Bible, and it's very useful. W-U-E-S-T, West, or worst, or... some. Anyone know how that's pronounced? West. A oh, Weast weast I haven't thought about that weast right Okay uh, The next one now this is for interest a young's literal is always nice to have on the bookshelf a young's literal version of the Bible And uh, it's an interesting one and if you read Isaiah 53 and John 20 You'll see a lot in those particular passages and last of all this is for fun as well Rotherham's emphatic You'll enjoy that right? Now, they are the versions of the Bible that I recommend. I'm sorry if you're sitting there with another version in your hand. They're the ones that I generally think are right. Now, obviously, if you're a young Christian, or if your children are reading the Bible, they might choose another version, but I do think you ought to be weaned eventually off those versions. Do you know, I once had to do a Bible study to a group of children who were all on a particular version of the Bible, which I will not name. And I didn't have a copy of this, you know. I mean, there are some books I won't have on my bookshelf. And I didn't have a copy of this particular so-called Bible. It was terrible. I have only had to say, put your Bibles down and just listen. The translation had nothing to do with the original text at all. Many of these translations have oversimplified everything. You know, they just write in what they think people will understand rather than what the original author, who is God, wrote. All right, so do be careful. Alright, with some of these. And I would suggest if you're on other versions, um, gradually wean yourself away from them and come on to one of these modern ones. There's quite a, a choice there, you know, and so you don't have to worry too much about that. I will eventually be changing the version of Bible that I use in the Bible studies. And I haven't decided which one I'll plump for yet, but it might be I might just move sideways and go to the new King James version, or I might be really dramatic. And uh, go to the New American Standard Version, right? I did think I was going to the NIV, but I've changed my mind a bit about that, all right? So there we are. So don't be surprised if in a couple of years' time I say, right, let's take out our Bibles and I have a brand new red one or something like that. And that's a New King James or whatever it is. By the way, there are certain things you can look for in a version to see whether it's good or not. I dealt with one of these in the Trinity series, but let me just show. Can we go to Psalm 84? Psalm 84... And let's just have a look at uh, this. Now, in Psalm 84, in the King James, you always get a little note above it. The prophet longeth for the communion of the sanctuary, for showeth how blessed they are that dwell therein, eight, he prayeth to be restored unto it. They're notes. You can do without those. But at the top of Psalm 84, just under those, you see this. To the chief musician upon Gittith, a psalm for the sons of Korah. Hands up if you haven't got that in your Bible. You have not got a good version of the Bible, right? (laughs) These notes above the Psalms are part of the inspired text, and they should be in. All right? Now, that's one way you can test a version of the Bible quite quickly. The other one, of course, as I said in the Trinity tapes, is Romans 9, verse 5. Can we quickly go there? Romans chapter 9 and verse 5. And if you're looking at a version you've never heard, just turn to this verse and see if it supports the Trinity. If it does, it's probably fairly good. If it doesn't, please remove it. In verse five, dealing with the Jews and uh, talking about the things that pertain to Israel, in verse five, "Whose are the fathers?" and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all God, blessed forever, for stop. Amen." And there's a statement of the Trinity. Christ came, and he is God, blessed forever. Amen. In some versions, and for example, I quote the revised standard version, which I haven't mentioned in my list of recommended versions, though it's the one I cut my teeth on, may I say, it says here, the, the translation of it is, according to the flesh is the Christ, full stop, God, who is over all, be blessed forever. And there, there is no statement of the Trinity. It separates Christ and God. That's probably a sign of a not very good translation. So there's the first thing, choose your version and stick with it. Number two, second point that I recommend. Before you read the word, always pray and make sure you're in fellowship with God. God cannot communicate with you if you're out of fellowship with him. Now that means, first of all, of course, confessing the sins you know and applying 1 John 1, 9, that he is faithful to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All right? Confess it to the Lord before you begin. This will only take a few seconds, or should do. Right? If it, takes, <laughs> if it takes longer than that, go for ministry somewhere. Right? But it should only take a few seconds. Make sure you're in fellowship with the Lord. There's also one other thing I want to say. Not only should you make sure you're in fellowship, but you must ask God to change the things that are worldly within you. Remember this, that the Bible is like food that we eat. This is a gourmet diet for us. And you can mess up a gourmet diet by eating junk food. Did you know that? I mean, how many of you have gone out for a good dinner? You're really looking forward to this splendid dinner out, right? Real gourmet stuff. It's going to be really wonderful. And on your way, you're feeling a bit peckish, and so you say, let's go to McDonald's and get four or five hamburgers. (laughs) I mean, you don't do it. Do that and eat all that junk rubbish. You won't be fit for the delicate cuisine that you're going to have. Your palate is going to be disturbed by the McDonald's rubbish. (laughs) And we as Christians have got to realize that if we're taking in the Word of God, we've got to give up the junk food. And that's why many verses in Scripture not only tell you to eat the Word, they tell you to put off something else. Let's see two verses that tell us that. James 1 First of all, dear old James says it again. In James 1 and verse 21, look what it says. It begins by putting off something. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness. Put off immorality. And all superfluity of naughtiness. I love that phrase. (laughs) All superfluity of naughtiness. It means all the evil that is so prevalent around us. Put all that rubbish away as well. And receive with meekness the engrafted word. Meekness with quietness, with, you know, like a horse that's been broken in. When the word of God's given to you, don't rush off like a wild stallion kicking, whoa, isn't that wonderful, whoa, and all this. Just receive it and contemplate, contemplate it and take it into yourself. Receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. So give up the junk food and get onto the real gourmet course. Or uh, one piece of two, which I'm very fond of quoting in the very early tapes of this series. 1 Peter 2. Now, I normally quote verse 2. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. Take in the word of God like a baby sucks in milk. Right? Have you ever seen a young calf attacking its mother for milk? That's keenness for you. That should be your attitude to the word of God. But look at verse 1. Throw out the junk food, we would say. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, take away the junk food and then get on to the good stuff. So make sure you're in fellowship. That's the next thing. All right. After that, let me say this. We've got to then start moving on in our relationship. Confess your sins, right? Put away evil speaking and the junk food. Then I think you also, as part of this prayer, ought to ask God to give you revelation. Revelation is essential. Don't be afraid to stop reading at any point and to say, Lord, give me a revelation of these things. Don't be afraid afterwards to pray and say, Lord, may this word come in and be living within me. Revelation, I believe, has been what has been missing from much Bible teaching uh, of the past few years. Many Bible teachers, you know, can give you all the facts in the world, but they don't seem to add any personal revelation to it. Now, I know this, that I love receiving revelations from the Lord. I love it. Most of my basic series and my major series contain gems that I've received from the Lord individually. Pearls that he's given to me. Ross will tell you, very often, I'll say, oh, I don't understand such and such a passage. And I ask God to show me. And I must have it because I'm preparing this series. If I don't understand this verse, what am I going to do? And then all of a sudden, six months later, or whatever it is, I get the revelation and I come rushing down into the kitchen, dancing around, you are Oh, praise the Lord. You know, my poor wife's sick to death, hearing of my struggles. She'll tell you, she's here. It's true, isn't it, darling? She, yes, she says, uh, it's true. All right. Often I'll come down saying, I still don't understand it. I normally do this before lunch, you know, working on something. I remember Psalm 110. I had tremendous problems with Psalm 110. And most commentators that I looked at didn't even know there was a problem there, let alone giving me the answer. And I used to say, Raz, I'm missing something. I know I'm missing. There's something I haven't seen. And just three weeks before, I had to give a major study on Psalm 110. I got it. Oh, I was so excited. I've seen it. Wonderful. She's busy serving up the dinner. I'm saying, and you see, it's like this. The, and and this. And, the, and yes, that yes <laughs> wonderful praise the Lord and then after lunch she says, now tell me it again <laughs> she says you see and we're getting it out and sometimes it's lovely I receive revelation in our meetings I remember once ministering in a Tuesday evening meeting about an angel the angel sitting on the stone some of you were there and this revelation that came you know as a revelation in that meeting but I needed it for a major study I was giving at a conference it was wonderful came in the meeting don't be afraid of revelation. Do you know, sometimes I get letters. Roger, I think I'm a Bible teacher. Could you tell me how to become a Bible teacher? Thank you. Yours sincerely. One of the things I often write back is, you have to pray for two and a half years first. That's what I say. Do you know, I prayed for two and a half years that God would open up the Word of God to me because I didn't understand it. Revelation is essential. So make sure you're in fellowship and that you use prayer in your Bible study. All right. Having said that, let's go on to number three. The third thing I want to say to help you study the Bible is this. You've got to just read it. That's so obvious. Oh, but I want to study it. Yes, but you've got to read it first. Those of you who've done English literature, look, if you're taking Animal Farm or something, the first thing you've got to do is go away and read the book. And the first thing you've got to do, I'm sorry, this is so easy. You've got to go away and read the Bible. Read it. Relax. Put your feet up with it. And enjoy it, right? Take an apple, bit of cheese, whatever is your poison. And you, uh, you enjoy yourself and put your feet up and you read it through. You've got to get to know what's in this book. Now say you then find a passage, I'm sure there must be one somewhere that you'll find like this, that you don't for the moment understand. Right? What do you do? Now some people say, oh well that's it. I can't, un- I can't make head and tail of it. You know, in the beginning, I don't know what it's talking about. I better give it up. And they close the book. Don't do it. If you find a passage that you don't understand, relax, is what I say. Just relax. Do You know, read it anyway, because the Holy Spirit will transfer it to your human spirit miraculously. He'll do the work. You may not understand. Your mind's left behind. Well, it doesn't matter. God doesn't need your mind. He'll transfer it through to your spirit. Yes, it's true. And then say, Lord, I don't understand the word that this is about. Will you show me? And it might be two years later that you're listening to a tape or you're reading it through again and suddenly you'll get the revelation. God answers prayer like that. But you must just read this Bible through. You must. You can go at your own pace. I mean, we hear certain Christians, you know, well, I read the Bible once a year from cover to cover. That's all right for them. You go at your own pace, but read it. I would recommend that you do this that you, for example, to get to know what's in it, that you read Genesis, you read Exodus, then you go on to Joshua, then you go on to Judges, then tuck little old Ruth in there and read Ruth, okay? Then go on to 1 and 2 Samuel. Once you've read those, generally speaking, you'll understand the overall flow of the Old Testament. Then read a Psalm, or 2, or 3, or 20, or whatever you want. (laughs) Read some of the Proverbs. Uh, Have a a go at, at Jonah. And some of the prophets, you know, just go through like that. In the New Testament, well, say Mark or Luke, begin with the gospel like that. Then on to John. Then Acts. Then why don't you read some of the smaller letters? And don't read them a chapter, read them right the way through. Remember, they're written as letters, right? And I don't know about you, but I tend to read my letters all at one sitting. Do you tend to do that? No, I don't read uh, the first page and then say, right, I'll read the second page tomorrow. Why don't you take the book of Galatians and read it through from cover to cover? And if you don't understand it, read it again tomorrow. And if you don't understand it, read it again the next day. And carry on for a month if necessary. But just read it. Philippians is a nice little book. Read it. Thessalonians. That's a delightful book, the two books there. You read those two. Titus. Have a go at Titus. One John. Just read Jude. You can manage Jude before breakfast. You try it. You see? Just read, 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 until you get to know exactly what is in the Word of God. Now, once you generally know it, you're ready to go on to stage number four. Stage number four is this. You must then learn to structure your knowledge of the Word of God. Structure. Do you know, if ever you're listening to a talk, generally speaking, a bad talk has no structure to it. Have you heard ministers like this? I've heard loads and loads, and they come on the platform... And they talk for a whole hour and a half, and at the end you think, oh, well, I enjoyed it, but I can't remember what he said. And it's all over the place. And it brings in a bit from here, and a bit from here, and, well, of course, fasting. Oh, yeah, let me tell you about fasting, and so, on, so, on, so, on, so on, and so and so and so and this, and then my wife. Oh, no, we're on to wife. Now, let me tell you about my wife. My marriage. Now, marriage is important, you know? And in our home, we run things right. Let me tell you how to run things right. And you, and you go all around the house Like this, and it's all amorphous, you know, it's like a jelly. Generally speaking, a good talk is one that is clearly structured. I don't mean the old homiletic thing, I've got seven points to make. One, two, not like that. But there has to be a structure in it for us to take it in. Now, you in the Word of God have got to see the structure in the Word of God. And by the way, this is a good way of finding out where things are in the Bible. Do you know, I have in my head the whole Bible structured out. Now, if someone's ministering on Elijah... I know which passage to go to. You see, I know where I'll find it. I may not know the exact verse, but I know the approximate part of the Bible that I can turn to. Elisha, I know that if I turn to two kings, and the beginning of two kings, it's in there somewhere. Do you see? Now we've got to structure it out like this. And you don't have it doesn't have to be detailed. It can be simple. Can I structure the book of Genesis for you now? And this might help. And if you're making notes, there's no copyright on this. You can have this. This should be in your head. Let me do it from my head. It's easy, right? Well, Genesis 1 and 2 is creation. Genesis 3 is the fall of man. Genesis 4 is Cain and Abel. Genesis 6 to 9 is Noah's flood. Genesis 11 is the Tower of Babel. Genesis 12 is the call of Abraham. And the chapters that follow are his life. Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 21, the birth of Isaac. Genesis 25, the birth of Esau and Jacob. Genesis 37, Joseph. Now you've got the whole book structured. If I want something in the life of Isaac, it's somewhere after 21 and not too many chapters after that. Do you see? If I want Joseph, it's somewhere after Genesis 37. Now that's all the basic structure you need to find your way around. Easy, don't you It's easy. John's Gospel can be structured similarly, right? Let's take John's Gospel. Uh, Chapter 1, well, it begins with, in the beginning was the word, right? And in chapter 1, you have the calling of the disciples. Easy. Chapter 2, the wedding at Cana. Chapter 3, Nicodemus. Chapter 4, the woman at the well, woman of Samaria. Well, chapter 5, I generally slip over, but if you want to remember it, it's the healing of the man by the pool of Siloam. Chapter 6, Jesus is the bread of life. Chapter 10, he's the good shepherd. Chapter 11, Lazarus. Then I miss chapter 12, but it's where the people want to see Lazarus and, and so on. Chapter 13, he washes the disciples' feet. Chapter 14, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in me and all the rest. Chapter 15, Jesus is the vine. And then you go through to the obvious chapters of the crucifixion, And so on. I mean, chapter 20, the resurrection occurs. In 21, what Jesus did when he was resurrected. It's as easy as that. There's the general structure of the book. Now, every Christian should have a structure like that in their heads. It doesn't take long to do it, you see. You can do it in another way if you want. Uh, The life of David, for example. Do you find it difficult when there's an event that happened in David's life and you think, where is it found? Well, it's easy. It's somewhere in 1 or 2 Samuel, anyway. So that's fairly easy, isn't it? Generally speaking, you can divide David's life into four main sections. It's easy. You've got his early life and the time until he became king. That's the first section. That's 1 Samuel 16 to the end of 1 Samuel. So if it's an event that happened then, there it is. When he killed Goliath, he was a young man. Where's that found? Well, it's somewhere between 1 Samuel 16 and the end, and it's actually 1 Samuel 17. Well, that's easy, right? You remember at the end of 1 Samuel, Saul gets killed? So David then enters his second phase, which is his uh, accession to the throne and his reign. Right? And that begins in 2 Samuel. Chapter 1, he laments over Saul. And then you go right through to chapter 10. So that's his accession, his coronation. Then you get the third phase of his life, his sin. Do you remember he committed adultery with Bathsheba? That is in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. See how easy this is. Then you come to the fourth and final stage of his life, his old life, and his death. Where's that? 2 Samuel 13 to the end of 2 Samuel. There's nothing difficult in it, as long as you structure it, do you see? And you know how I structured it was this. This is actually the book that I first used when I was first converted. And uh, I began the Gospel of Matthew. I found this. I was a very young Christian. First chapter deals with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to deportation to Babylon, 14 from deportation to Christ. Mary conceived of the Holy Ghost, Joseph saw an angel who explained the conception, so he married her. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus was born. Chapter 2, right? Born in Bethlehem of Judea. And and then chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. Now, no one taught me how to do that, That's what I did, because I wanted to understand the Bible. And this is full of little uh, gems that I did, you know, writing down everything. This is my Bible study book that I used, you see. Why don't you get a little book like that and just draw out a quick a resume of major books in the Bible that you want to remember. So structure it like that. Now that's one way of just structuring the Word of God. There's another way to structure it, and that's according to time. You know, don't you, that time is the bones, really, of history. And sometimes it's nice to have a general time framework um, out and to base everything upon it. I've drawn one out here. There are many ways of doing this. I've based this, and I've changed it slightly, from something that Charlie Clough produced. Let me just... um, That's not quite in focus, is it? Let me just get that right. I've divided here the whole of history into 28 groups. And if you want a a copy of this, you can order it afterwards or send to the tapes and get a copy. And uh, you can divide the whole history of the earth into 28 different periods. Now, this is lovely because when you're reading a book, you can find where the book was written. You can also find which period of time a certain passage is relating to. Very quickly, let's go through them. First of all, you have the creation. Number two, you have the fall. Number three, you have the flood. Number four, the covenant with Noah. Number five, Abraham and his family. That's the book of Genesis, generally. Then you get this historical event called the Exodus. Then the giving of the law on Mount Sinai and the wilderness journey. Then after the crossing of Jordan, number eight, you get the conquest and settlement of the land. See how quickly we can run through history here. Number nine, the call and reign of David. Number 10, the golden era of King Solomon. Number 11, the decline of the kingdom. Number 12, the fall of the kingdom. Number 13, the exile in Babylon. Number 14, the restoration after the exile. Now that's the Old Testament. 15, the birth of King Jesus. 16, the life of King Jesus. 17, the death of King Jesus. 18, the resurrection of King Jesus. 19, the ascension of King Jesus. 20, Pentecost. Then 21, and I'll be dealing with this at the conference, okay, on the truth about Israel. Israel and the church separate. And that's the book of Acts. In In the book of Acts, you see definitely this gradual divide between Israel and the church coming about. 22, church history. That's the period we live in now. Then you come into the future. 23, the rapture. 24, the Tribulation. 25, the second advent. 26, the millennium. 27, the great white throne. 28, eternity. Now that's the whole history of the earth laid out. Now you're able, for example, to put in where the prophets come, which one of these the prophets comes in, where various books of the Bible come, and then later on, I'll help you later on in the course to do this, uh, find out where certain prophecies relate to. And that's quite a useful thing. Make your own up. You don't have to stick to that. You make your own up whichever one that you want now that's another way of structuring it by the way there is a third way of structuring it and that's to do it theologically and actually you remember that earlier on in this course i shared how in fact when i first studied the bible i couldn't understand it and the lord gave me a vision of a building site that was absolutely filled with bricks and girders and doors and wash basins and you know the sort of thing that will long would delight in Right? Had everything. Roof tiles, the lot. Okay? Was on this. But it was all over the place. And I saw someone picking up a brick saying, Where does this go? And the door, Well, where should this go? And the Lord said to me, Clear the thing. First of all, put in the framework. And in the basic takes that I've done, I've tried to give the framework, which eventually will tell you where every verse fits, as far as the overall plan of God is concerned. And of course, I would recommend, wouldn't I? that a good way of doing this is to actually start working through the basic tapes. Do you know, there are 105 tapes altogether in the basic series. If you take one a week, you'll be finished within two years. That's not bad. And don't just listen, write notes on these. We have students all around the country, you know, who are writing notes on these tapes, just quick notes. If you do two a week, you'll be finished in a year. That you may catch me up, you don't know. But that's what you can do. And if you're determined to do it, it's a good way to do it and start working through. All right, so then your knowledge starts getting structured and that's a very good thing to do. Okay, now I've forgotten which number we're on now. Praise the Lord. But there we are. Actually structure it. That's number four, I think. Number five, now you can move on again. And these uh, do overlap. Then you can actually start studying various topics. And do you know, it's a lovely thing to do. Actually take a topic and get interested in that topic and follow it through the Bible. I know a man that I met two weeks ago who really said that he wasn't interested in the Bible until suddenly he got interested in the Shekinah glory of the Lord. Do you know what he did? He traced all the times that the glory of the Lord appeared through the Bible. He got so thrilled with it, he couldn't put it down. His wife said, "We," she said, "We, we got rid of the television. You know, because it was so fantastic, this thing, you see. I've known other people who've got thrilled with the tabernacle. And some people who have written it all out, detailed notes, trying to build one. There's nothing wrong with any of this. Choose a topic and follow it through. Or, if you want, you can take the life of a man. Elijah's a good man to study. Write the heading, Elijah, and start reading it through. and See what you can get from it. King David, do that. Use my little structure and study his life it's very interesting the chap I want to study but I haven't got time to do it so please do it and do a tape on it and I'll listen to it is the man Joab go on do a study of Joab and when you've done your notes let me have them go on I'll be inundated you wait and see now (laughs) Joab right lovely why don't you take a certain topic like love or faith fasting I'm doing a tape on fasting next year why don't you beat me to it Right, Do the research yourself. See if you can get the revelations. And afterwards, you'll be able to come up and say, well, that was quite a good talk, but you did miss a lot. (laughs) You know, God spoke to me. You'll be able to beat me at it. It's wonderful. That would be absolutely thrilling. Or why don't you take out one book and really determine you're going to understand it. Galatians. Take Galatians and go through it verse by verse by verse by yourself. You get really excited. There are several books that can help you. So here I want to give you another list right, of books that I think will actually help you do this. And so let me uh, just give you this. You don't need all of these, right? Now, Malcolm, w- who runs the bookshops, away on holiday, so I can say this. Don't go and buy them all. He'd be sitting there going, what's he saying? But some of these are very good. I would say the first one, everyone should have, if you're a real uh, you're really serious with the Bible. You need a concordance. And the concordance I would recommend is Young's Analytical Concordance. Or Young's Concordance, if you want to call it that. It's a most marvelous uh, thing. And you really are a Bible student when you find mistakes in it. Right, that's just a little hint. Number two, I'd recommend W.E. Vine's, V-I-N-E, W.E. Vine's Expository, Dictionary of New Testament words. Or just his dictionary of New Testament words will do. There's an edition now with old, some Old Testament words in as well. Well, you're welcome to that. Okay, that's very useful. Again, based on the King James Version of the Bible. Oh dear. Number three. I would recommend a Schofield or a Ryrie study Bible. I would. The Ryrie, you know, comes in a King James edition or a New American Standard Version. And if you haven't got a new American Standard Version, why don't you buy it in a Rari edition and you get both at once? It's a good idea that, you see. But beware. You've got to realise the prejudices of the people who are writing. Right? Beware. Both Schofield and Rari are against the baptism of the Spirit. So don't sort of have a heart attack when you read their notes to one Corinthians chapter twelve. Don't. And the other warning I give you is don't read the notes rather than the Bible terribly easy to do that and you read the notes and read the notes and read the notes and the Bible doesn't get read so if you're in danger of doing that don't get these right Uh, number four some people like the companion Bible dear mr. Bullinger's companion Bible and I must say it's um it's a nice little book for just picking up and flicking through and reading the appendix right the appendices at the back they're marvelous information not all right He's an ultra dispensationalist if that means anything to you, but uh, but it's got some lovely little uh, tidbits in there So that's a nice one if you've got a, a spare 25 pounds <laughs> uh, Or is it 20 pounds? I can't remember and uh, number five I'd recommend, but I never use it myself I haven't even gotten a, dish, a copy, but some people like it Nave's topical Bible N-A-V-E Nave's topical Bible and what he does He takes a particular topic, and he lists all the scriptures that relate to that topic, and that's quite useful for some people Um, A Thompson's chain reference Bible some of you know that Thompson's chain reference. That's useful Remember to read the Bible as well as the notes Seven Again don't get all of these Dakes D a K E Dakes annotated Bible annotated means he's written notes and has he written notes? Wowee, it's absolutely amazing. Again, he's wrong in part. He believes you can lose your salvation. You'll get that right through. Also, his chronology is up the shoot. He gets the wrong dates for uh, Esther and other things like that. But you watch out for those things and, and see how you get on. Number eight, Ungers. Anything by Unger. U-N-G-E-R. His Dictionary of the Bible, you know, and so on. Anything by Unger. Again, he's against the baptism of the Spirit, so watch it. Number nine, you've got a spare 75 pounds, or has it gone up to 95 now? The Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia of the Bible. Now, eventually, when we have our own conference building, we'll have a library with all of these in, all right? But you should have one or two. The first two, I think, you ought to aim at getting. They're good uh, presents and so on. Now, with those, you can really start going into the Word of God in depth. Two more things I want to say. Number six, how to study the Bible. Number six, read good books as well. Read good books as well, good Christian books. Read them. Now, beware here, again, don't just read testimony books. You know, testimony books are fine, they give you an uplift for a minute, but it doesn't really last, you know. Many of them are not truthful. They make it all sound as if it all happened in a year. And they sort of telescope things that have happened over 20 years into one year. And you read the book saying, this is wonderful. And then you think, which backwater am I living in? You know, it doesn't seem to happen like this to me. Beware of that, you know. And, uh, and I would say this as well. Have a varied diet in your books. Don't read too many books on the same subject or by the same type of author. You ought to have a good variety and keep yourself healthy, Right? Do remember this, it's the whole counsel of God that we have to teach. Last of all, number seven, and this is an important point, share the things that you have received from the Lord. If you don't give out what you've received, you won't get fresh water in. This is the principle of a well. If the water is not removed and thrown onto the garden or used in some way, it will soon go bad. So whatever you receive from the Lord, give it out. You know, I'm the person that gives out and gives out and gives out, and that's why I have so much fresh water rushing in the other way, which is nice. So share what you have. And in our meetings, you have every opportunity to do that. And if you are having regular time with the Lord, you should actually have plenty to share. Praise God. But share it, not just in a meeting, but individually as well. Now there are seven basic points to help you in your study of the Bible. Now, if that's as much as you can take, just switch off now. But I want to say just a few more minutes worth for those who tend to want to go into greater depth. And I might very well be doing a tape uh, later on, perhaps at the end of this series, in which I actually uh, go do a tape for advanced Bible students. But can I just address myself to those? I've got a list, another list, it's all lists tonight. Of things that will help you I would say this that you need to do all seven points that I've mentioned but more so if you're going to be an advanced student and I would say this that those who are going on ought to know some of the rudimentary things about the ancient languages Greek and Hebrew and if you're going to do that why don't you either try and teach yourself or get a teacher to help you right there are some good books out Wenham's w-e-n-h-a-m Wenham's teach yourself New Testament Greek Or J's, introduction is it to New Testament, something like that anyway, they're quite good. Do you know the major problem people have with learning Greek is they don't know English well. And you've got to know English first, and you'll find that all of these books begin with a chapter or two on English. I mean, if you don't know what a perfect tense is in English, forget Greek. Forget it. If you don't know what a perfect tense is, really, you'll never be able to translate a perfect tense in Greek. So learn the English. You've got to know what pronouns are. You've got to know what the vocative is, the genitive, the dative, what indicative mood means, right? what subjunctive mood means. I'm sorry for those of you who have already switched off. This is not for you. But learn your English first. Now, to help you, let me say that uh, you need certain things. One, an interlinear Bible. You can now get the Hebrew interlinear of the Old Testament. And this means it's got the English text written out with the Hebrew word underneath. You can also get them for the New Testament. The English is written out and the Greek words are underneath. Secondly, I would say you need a lexicon. L-E-X-I-C-O-N. It's a word book of Greek words and it tells you what they mean in English, right? So there are several lexicons on the market. Uh, The one I have is Arndt and Gingrich, right? A-R-N-D-T. A-R-N-D-T. And Gingrich, G-I-N-G-R-I-C-H. Aren't in Gingrich. Or Thayer's is quite good. Thayer's. No, not Thayer's. Thayer's. T-H-A-Y-E-R. Thayer. Then, you should, if you're really going on, get one of these, which is an analytical Greek lexicon. An analytical Greek lexicon. And all it does, it lists every form of every Greek word used in the New Testament and tells you what that word is. For example, it will have here a certain word and it says first person plural, future indicative passive. Now if you don't know what they mean, forget this. This is not the book for you. This is more boring than reading the London Telephone Directory. (laughs) Right? It really is. But if you come across a Greek word and you want to know what it means, that means something, you see. First person plural means something future Indicative passive You know with passive uh, the active you do it the passive it is done to you The middle is slightly more complicated right tends to mean you do it to yourself or something like that Well if you want to go into that depth. That's the book for you. It's a very very good one indeed uh, Then I would say uh, perhaps you ought to get a strong exhaustive concordance <laughs> right a Strong's exhaustive, not exhausting, exhaustive. And if you're going to use Strong's, then get a Thayer's lexicon because they go together. All right? Right, the last three things I want to recommend are these for advanced. I should have said to the others, please go home. This is just for the few here. I would say that commentaries on the New Testament, you can't do better, really, than uh, Hendrickson's, Hendrickson. He hasn't covered every book of the New Testament, but they're very good. Just learn he's an millennialist. that's all, right? But they're very good books indeed, and uh, gradually build them up. They're fairly reasonably priced as well. For the Old Testament, the only commentary I can recommend, and it may be, it's not for ordinary people, but it is for uh, the more advanced students, is the Kiel and Delitz commentary of the Old Testament. It's very expensive, so why not ask the library to get it? A uh, K E I L, and Delitz D-E-L-I-T-Z-S-C-H Keel and Delitz commentary on the Old Testament and then if you want a systematic theology this is number 8 the one I would recommend is Chaffer or Schaffer, Chafer or Schaefer C-H-A-F-E-R Chafer systematic theology on top of that use Encyclopedia Britannica Cambridge Ancient History and so you go on Let's just end tonight's study by turning again to our Bibles and go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Then I've got a little quiz for you to do. (laughs) I'm not going to mark it, it's all right. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands or collect papers in or anything, and it will literally only take you seven minutes. And I would say it's easy. Right? It depends how long you've been a Christian. Let's just read 2 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 2 to verse 4, and we live in these days. Now verse 2, preach the word. Teach the word. Talk the word. Gossip the word. But get into the word. Preach the word. Be instant, in season and out of season. When people want you to teach, teach. When they don't want you to teach, teach. If they're taking it in, teach. If they're not taking it in, teach. But keep going, because it's tough. Then it says, Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come, and I would say and now is, when they will not endure sound doctrine. And this is Christians. They don't want sound doctrine. But instead of that, what do they want? But after their own lusts, their own desires, what they want to hear, shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, They don't want the solid word of God. They want to hear about this. They want to hear about that. But he's teaching what I want to hear. This is the sort of stuff I want to hear. And they'll follow after that. He says, we will live in a day like that. We live in that day today. Yet we've got to stay solidly in the word of God. And by the way, a true Bible teacher teaches the whole counsel of God, not just one little bit of it. He doesn't specialize in one area, the whole council. And even though people today have itching ears, chasing after the Bible teachers they want, let us remain firmly in the word of God. All right? And then the last verse, verse 4. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. And that is what is going on in our day when you have fabulous things, fables being promoted in many countries of the world, and people are so excited and they're following after them but they have nothing to do with the solid doctrine that's found in the word of truth. As for me and my house, we're going to stick with the word. Praise God. Let's just pray, and then I'll put up this very simple Bible quiz. And may I say, this is not to make you feel, oh, I don't know anything. It's just to show you how advanced you are. If you're very advanced, you'll do this with your eyes closed. If you're reasonably advanced, you should get a out of ten, I would say. If you're sort of average, I would say six or seven, well, seven, say. If you're under five, I think you've got, well, you're either a very young Christian or you've got a lot of work to do, I would say. Let's just pray. Father, I do thank you, Lord, for this uh, very practical session. And I would ask, Father, that this shouldn't just be on tape, but that this should be in our lives. I pray you'll give us such a desire to search out the truth that we'll be excited every time we open the Word of God. Father, please just bless us all. And Father, as we come next time to wonderful subjects, I just ask we might be really thrilled with what we study. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Praise you. Next time, I'm going to give the first of several studies on dispensations. And there's a controversial word if you've ever heard it.